This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Today, we're going to take up a blog post from Matt entitled Lessons from the Justice Department Meltdown. Matt, take it away. Yeah, sure, Tom. So this refers to two different things that we have seen unfold in the last two weeks or so within the attorney general's office and the White House. Um, number one is Attorney General William Barr's intervention in the Roger Stone case, Roger Stone being that pal and uh, dirty trickster of the Trump campaign who was facing charges of uh, lying to Congress and witness tampering. And when the prosecutor – and he's been convicted, Roger Stone. Uh, and then when the prosecutors recommended a seven- to nine-year sentence, uh, A.G. Barr then directly intervened in that case – to say that actually, no, we now recommend a much lower sentence that prompted all four special prosecutors on that case to resign from the prosecution team. Uh, Roger Stone was ultimately sentenced to, I think, 40 months in jail, uh, but a highly irregular intervention directly from the attorney general into a case uh, with basically that, uh, you know, William Barr intervened um, on in a case that involved a friend of his boss, the president, uh, President Trump. So highly unusual case there. And that's one thing that happened with the Justice Department. And then the other thing that happened right on top of that was the president himself issuing this wave of pardons to white collar criminals, including Michael Milken from the 1980s, the junk bond fraudster king, um, the interview, he pardoned uh, Bernie Carrick, who is a pal of Rudy Giuliani and a former police commissioner of New York who was uh, convicted of tax fraud. Uh, he also pardoned Rod Blagojevich, the former may, uh, governor of Illinois, who essentially tried to sell off Barack Obama's Senate seat when uh, Barack Obama was elected president in 2008. And Tom, if I'm forgetting any other white collar criminals, let me know because there was a lot. And the president totally disregarded the usual process in the Justice Department to vet requests for presidential pardons and just said, this guy, this guy, this guy, they're all political donors. They are all friends of the president or they are all friends of his henchmen, such as Bernie Carrick, friend of Rudy Giuliani. And they all are now pardoned or had their sentences commuted or something like that. So both of these things, the Roger Stone intervention by Bill Barr and the president's uh, pardoning of white-collar criminals with a total disregard of the pardon process, those together, to me, 
give a couple of different lessons that are very practical about companies under investigation, a bit more philosophical about how an ethical culture at a large organization, and the Justice Department did have one, and I'm sure in many offices still does, but at the very top, how do senior leaders let that all unravel? Because it did. Um, And then there are some real lessons for everybody who's rolling their eyes thinking this is just politics. No, no, people. The unraveling of the rule of law at the Justice Department and the White House, I believe, and I think we've seen evidence of, can have very real applications in the private sector that are going to tie compliance officers up into knots, and I can give you one or two examples of those too. But we have a lot that we could cover here, and that's what my post was about. So I guess the only two data points I would add from my perspective, Matt, were one, number one, Bill Barr made the change in the sentencing guideline after being instructed via Twitter by President Trump to do so. And the single one point that all of the people who received pardons had in common is they paid into Trump's, um, they either made a political donation or stayed at Trump properties uh, so that they could garner the pardons. But- Um, the, um, sort of on the practical side of things, I was very intrigued as you cited to Sarah Croft's uh, most excellent blog, Grand Jury Target, but her blog post, which talked about how this was really a gift to the defense bar. You want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. And in fact, uh, Tom, I'm going to give you some credit because I knew of her blog, but I don't follow it regularly. And you, And Jay Rosen had mentioned this on uh, This Week in FCPA a week or two ago, so I went and I read it, and everybody else should read that post. But her basic point was that when Bill Barr is intervening and he was arguing that even if the sentencing guidelines were, quote, perhaps technically applicable, the judge should disregard them because, again, quote, they disproportionately escalate the defendant's sentencing exposure. Now, This is a big wet kiss to the corporate defense bar because this is the argument they want to try to make all the time is that, yeah, you know, we should be exposed to this kind of sentence, but really that's mean. We should get a lesser sentence. And now the Justice Department has essentially made the same argument. So will we see more defense lawyers starting to potentially even cite this memo or cite this precedent? When they are arguing for lighter sentences themselves, um, Sarah Croft said, yes, uh, they probably will, and that is their job, so I'm not surprised about that. Um, And the other point that she had mentioned, which I think might be even more relevant for compliance officers, is that A.G. Barr said Roger Stone shouldn't receive harsher punishment for his attempted obstruction because it isn't clear that his attempts at obstruction actually worked and really complicated the government's um, efforts at trial. So my question, which I don't think Sarah Kropf uh, brought up directly, but what's sticking around in my head is, again, could defense lawyers make a similar claim about maybe a company foot dragging during an investigation? Well, we shouldn't be penalized about that because did it really complicate the Justice Department's um, investigation of us or not, you know, we don't know. So maybe that just shouldn't count against us, which runs counter to the leniency policies that we see from the Justice Department, where they say, if you want leniency in an FCPA probe or any other kind of corporate misconduct, you must cooperate. Well, here is uh, William Barr in at least one instance saying, it doesn't really matter if you were a jerk in the case and you tried to obstruct unless your obstruction actually worked. So, Tom, you've been a corporate lawyer, and I, I'm not, but my question is, you know, 
could this dynamic that A.G. Barr introduced in the Roger Stone memo, could people start making that uh, argument in corporate investigations that maybe obstruction or refusing to cooperate shouldn't count against you? And I don't know, but I, I look forward to the fact pattern that will let somebody try and make that what I think is a cockamamie argument. But nonetheless, there we are. Well, I guess I would take it a step further, Matt, because I would say it's not attempted obstruction. It's actual obstruction. And uh, the memo would attempt to put the burden on the prosecution to show that the obstruction actually prevented the prosecution from moving forward. And uh, certainly in our FCPA anti-corruption world, uh, we have several recent examples of companies not fully cooperating. And they could, I think, very cogently come in and argue that under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, it's antithetical to the arguments made by Bill Barr uh, here as instructed by Donald Trump, so that um, I don't think that would work with line prosecutors, and that's a negotiation, not a uh, judicial proceeding. Nevertheless, it, it is precedent, and it is something that uh, uh, if lawyers can find something to utilize as an advantage in an argument, they're going to use it. So it certainly uh, yeah. go that direction. Well, so I think you know, my fundamental takeaway from Sarah's article uh, is that this puts legal teams and compliance teams in tension. And I know a lot of companies still say compliance reports into legal. You know, whatever you want to tell yourself to get you through the day is fine. But compliance and legal are not the same thing, even when you treat it as such companies that do and you know who you are. Um, but the legal department, whose only job is to reduce liability for the company, is going to stand up and say, well, even the DOJ doesn't believe that this is proper when – the compliance team is running around telling people that proper conduct matters. And now we have at least this example from Bill Barr saying it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and how are we going to square these things? Uh, you know, like you said, the, this is antithetical to what the leniency programs are. And how do we make this work? And I don't necessarily know that we do, but I can see many practical uh, challenges here cropping up from this. And uh, Tom, that leads me into my next point where you said line prosecutors will probably not buy this load of malarkey if a corporate lawyer tries to uh, put it forth. But if you are representing a close friend of the president and you're that line prosecutor, now what do you think? Because that leads me to my next point here about how tone at the top really is going to really complicate how uh, compliance programs uh, or you know how compliance programs work and if we treat the Justice Department as its own organization just like any other um, you can see where a bad tone at the top is going to trample over every other attempt to say good conduct matters um, because all of that has gone out the window um, that's where I get into the presidential pardons and well, we'll put Roger Stone and Bill Barr aside for right now. As you pointed out, with the criminals that the president pardoned, all of them are associates of the president, donors to his campaign or to his business interests, or they are friends of his cronies. And what the president did was toss aside proper procedure in front in favor of arbitrary judgment. And that smacks of favoritism because it is favoritism. And once you're in that world, once the tone at the top is about favoritism rather than proper procedure, this whole new dynamic takes root. Um, you don't necessarily have to strive for good conduct 
to achieve a favorable result. You just need to strive for favoritism with the dear leader. And, um, you know, so last week, as I was looking through a lot of these uh, commentary about the Roger Stone case, about all of the presidential pardons, you did see some people arguing that maybe Roger Stone should have received a lesser sentence. Maybe, I saw this in particular, Rod Blagojevich, maybe he should have deserved a pardon. And I personally actually would say maybe Michael Milken could deserve a pardon. I'm not entirely sure, but he's done a lot of good works since his misconduct of the 1980s. I'd be open to that idea. But all of that is talking about putting a set of facts through a certain process and you get to an outcome. And then management says, well, do we like that outcome or not? Or should we override it in favor of some higher principle? And that's not what we saw here. Um, That is management reversing an outcome of a process for some greater good. This was management totally disregarding process. There was no process around any of these pardons. Trump just said, you, 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 I like you guys. I know you all. You get the pardon. Rock out. Um, So, Tom, here's my hypothetical scenario, and I'd love your thoughts on this. If you are a company under investigation for some corporate misconduct, you can do two things. You can spend millions of dollars building up a compliance program and tell all your employees that good conduct is important and we're going to do this. Or you could donate $1 million to the committee to reelect the president. And then he so knows who you are, and then he gives you a pardon. What's the choice there? And do we think that that might actually come to pass? Because it's very clear that Donald Trump has said he will do things like this. He has now made actions to show, yes, he will do these kind of things for his favorites. So that's really the uh, the alarm bell that sticks out to me is we could see a whole lot of people circumventing the judicial process and regulatory investigations and all sorts of efforts to build up compliance programs to get favorable outcomes because, you know what, I'm just going to write a check to the president for his reelection. Then he's going to know who I am and then he's going to pardon me and that's it. There are people out there who are going to think that, and that's really where I wonder, are we heading here? And I don't know, Tom, I've been rambling for five minutes. What do you think of all this? Companies under investigation may take that approach and say, I'll just make a donation now, and uh, he will communicate via Twitter to the Department of Justice that we're being unfairly investigated. And then the leadership of the Department of Justice will follow what the president tells them and order the line prosecutors to drop the investigation. Is that possible? Certainly. Um, Based on what we saw over the past couple of weeks, I think it's uh, certainly a possibility, Matt. I mean, I think this is a terrible precedent for people who are in the business of saying good process matters and good process based on certain inalienable ethical beliefs that matters. And so all you employees in the organization, you really do have to listen to us and take the training seriously and all of that. It becomes tremendously hard to make that argument if everybody can see clearly that actually it doesn't matter if you've got 850 grand to dump into a re-election fund and then you're going to win a pardon, which I think is the amount that one of the white-collar criminals uh, had supported to the president, and he got pardoned. Um and, you know, if you are a line prosecutor, what are you going to do? It was great to see four of them in the Roger Stone case. Uh, at least they left the case on principle and one of them resigned from the department entirely. But are we really going to see a lot of line prosecutors uh, sacrificing their careers because they know that this stinks? Um, 
I don't know where we're going to go with that, but this is the precedent that Donald Trump has set. Um, it clearly seems like something Bill Barr is either okay with or doesn't necessarily care about, or maybe in some world he feels powerless to try and um, fight against it. I don't think that's true at all. I, th- I think he actually thinks this is fine, but um, it's a terrible precedent for him to set uh, Donald Trump, and I don't know where that's all going to end. Um, but it does drive home this larger lesson about organizational behavior and, and structure that you can have some really great processes and you might even have some outcomes like reducing a sentence for somebody in a disciplinary action or forgiving them. Maybe they would make sense, but if the tone at the top, if people can see that it's arbitrary, having all those processes in place doesn't make a difference. And you know, you can do the right thing but go about it the wrong way. That's terrible for good corporate conduct. And you know, maybe Bill Barr did go about things, uh, you know, maybe he did do the right thing with Roger Stone but went about it the wrong way. I don't think so, but clearly other people do. They've been writing about it. Um, but if you are going about something the, the wrong way, well, if our career is based on following a certain proper process, you know, suddenly your career is in you know, the message you're trying to send is in real jeopardy if that's the country you live in with uh, the rule of law unraveling. So that was my big second point. And then I have a third point about how, no, really, this is going to reach more companies than they think. Um, so you want to rip into the home stretch here? Well, how do you think that could uh, work as well, Matt? This, I, I love this case. So here is a real case of somebody. Um, his name is Nelson Gibson. He's a man from Florida who receives kidney treatments from a dialysis center in uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida, where he wanted to bring a life-size poster of President Trump to his dialysis treatments for emotional support. And I am not making this up, and anybody who thinks this is crazy, just remember what I said. A man in Florida, so you know, as crazy as it is, is probably true. Um, Nelson Gibson wanted to bring in this life-size cutout of President Trump during his dialysis treatments, and Fresenius Kidney Care said, no, you cannot do that. That is a violation of our policy. Uh, It is too big and clunky. It prevents clear line of sights for medical staff. You can't do it. And he decided to take to Twitter about this outrageous censorship, uh, this anti-Trump political diatribe that uh, Fresenius Kidney Care must be imposing upon him because he can't take in this life-size cutout. There's a photo with the article that ran in the Washington Post. It's bizarre. But whatever, I guess, dude, if that's what you want to do. But he is very clearly trying to get the attention of the president through social media. And if this thing gets picked up on Fox News, if it gets picked up by one of his sons or something like that, and suddenly Eric Trump is talking about this um, unfair treatment of a Trump supporter or whatever, you know how this goes. There is a remote chance that President Trump is going to pick up Nelson Gibson's case and say this is terrible, who should be allowed to do it. And if you're for sending us kidney care, what are you going to do about that? Because when we talk about arbitrary judgments and favoritism that all hinges on your proximity and your supplication to the dear leader, well, anybody can do that these days. And then suddenly the dear leader can spout off and bring the full weight of uh, the media that follows the president or the full apparatus of the federal government to a company. And if you're a company, are you really going to want this? 
And so what would a kidney care center do? Would they really say, grow up, get a life? And by the way, he could bring in his little 8 by 10 cutout of President Trump to his dialysis. I guess that wasn't enough emotional support for him. He wanted the full-size uh, cutout. Um, but, you know, if you're Fresenius, if you're any company that suddenly finds itself in the crosshairs of President Trump and somebody unhappy with your corporate policies, what are you going to do? And I don't know. But clearly, President Trump is going to think, well, you know, maybe I'll throw a bone to this guy here who's caught my attention or this person over here who's I saw on Fox News. And they can pull a company into this maelstrom. And then whatever compliance and policies that you have already or good conduct procedures for your employees, for your customers, for anybody, whatever your code is or your operating policies – if the president is willing to disregard them in his own organization, he's certainly willing to disregard them in yours, and other people know that, and they're going to try and jump right over you to get the president to weigh in on their behalf. Now, maybe if this guy donated a million dollars to the president's reelection campaign, I suddenly bet the president would be very interested in whether he can take a cutout of uh, the president into his kidney care. And then what's the kidney dialysis center going to do about that? But this is the way – that these things can sort of infect the private enterprise world. Um, this is a cute case. This is silly, and I don't even know how this is all going to get resolved. But in a much more substantive way, don't forget back in 2017, the president weighed in on a plant from, I think it was General Motors, in Lordstown, Ohio, where they were going to close it. And the president said, no, I don't want you to close it. doesn't matter that his – intervention in that was totally inappropriate and here's the government weighing in on a private business's decision he said no don't close it because i want those people there to continue their adulation of me and so uh, gm kept it open now i think since then they have not actually kept it open or the people who were employed there like you know the lordstown plant is not employing the people that it used to but at least back in 2017 there was this big glaring spotlight where the president tried to intervene in a business decision, and he's going to be able to do that more often. He has shown no compunction about intervening in these things, perfectly willing to do it. So are we going to see more and more of this nonsense with companies caught in the middle and facing the squeeze? And uh, I think, yes, you know, when will the president do something like this? As soon as he thinks he can get away with it. And that's really the lesson here about how this misconduct that we see at the White House really can tie other people far removed from the White House, can tie you guys in the knots. That is why it matters to ethics and compliance people in the private sector. So, man, I guess the only thing I would add is that uh, I would expect him not to wait until he thought he could get away with it, but whenever he wants to do it and whenever he wants to inflame his base, uh, that's when he'll uh, interfere and it, intervene yeah. in the uh, internal workings of a corporation um, come hell or high water. And when you have nobody within the Justice Department or other regulatory agencies pushing back to say this is improper, then what's a company going to do to when they feel the full pressure of the president weighing down like that? Um, you know, I am all for thoughtful management override, but when we have no – override process at all. It's just random, arbitrary judgments. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? It's people getting close to the leader who makes those judgments. And then everything else that you have goes by the wayside, including strong policies about how companies conduct themselves or how they want employees or customers to behave. None of it matters. 
in that kind of a world. And that's what we're edging towards. And that's what we saw with the Justice Department and the pardons in the last two weeks. And it's a signal, I think, of what might come yet if uh, if events continue along their merry path. All right. Uh, well, uh, this has been a fascinating exploration, and I look forward to seeing what next week brings us, Matt. Thank you, sir. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for joining us on this episode, and I hope you will join us again next week where Matt and I take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds on a compliance topic. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.